0: The Man Who Knew Too Much by G. K. Chesterton read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. CHAPTER V. THE FAD OF THE FISHERMAN A thing can sometimes be too extraordinary to be remembered. If it is clean out of the course of things, and has apparently no causes and no consequences, subsequent events do not recall it, and it remains only a subconscious thing, to be stirred by some accident long after it drifts apart like a forgotten dream and it was in the hour of many dreams at daybreak and very soon after the end of dark that such a strange sight was given to a man sculling a boat down a river in the west country the man was awake indeed he considered himself rather wide awake being the political journalist harold march on his way to interview various political celebrities in their country seats but the thing he saw was so inconsequent that it might have been imaginary It simply slipped past his mind and was lost in later and utterly different events. Nor did he even recover the memory till he had long afterward discovered the meaning. Pale mists of morning lay on the fields and the rushes along one margin of the river. Along the other side ran a wall of tawny brick almost overhanging the water. He had shipped his oars and was drifting for a moment with the stream when he turned his head and saw that the monotony of the long brick wall was broken by a bridge, rather an elegant eighteenth-century sort of bridge with little columns of white stone turning grey. There had been floods, and the river still stood very high, with dwarfish trees waist-deep in it, and rather a narrow arc of white dawn gleamed under the curve of the bridge. As his own boat went under the dark archway, he saw another boat coming toward him rowed by a man as solitary as himself. His posture prevented much being seen of him, but as he neared the bridge he stood up in the boat and turned round. He was already so close to the dark entry, however, that his whole figure was black against the morning light, and March could see nothing of his face except the end of two long whiskers or moustaches that gave something sinister to the silhouette, like horns in the wrong place. Even these details March would never have noticed, but for what happened in the same instant. As the man came under the low bridge he made a leap at it and hung, with his legs dangling, letting the boat float away from under him. March had a momentary vision of two black kicking legs, then of one black kicking leg, and then of nothing except the eddying stream and the long perspective of the wall. But whenever he thought of it again, long afterwards, when he understood the story in which it figured, it always fixed in that one fantastic shape, as if those wild legs were a grotesque, graven ornament of the bridge itself in the manner of a gargoyle. At the moment he merely passed, staring down the stream. He could see no flying figure on the bridge, so it must have already fled. But he was half conscious of some faint significance in the fact that among the trees round the bridgehead opposite the wall he saw a lamp-post and beside the lamp-post the broad blue back of an unconscious policeman even before reaching the shrine of his political pilgrimage he had many other things to think of besides the odd incident of the bridge the management of a boat by a solitary man was not always easy even on such a solitary stream and indeed it was only by an unforeseen accident that he was solitary A boat had been purchased and the whole expedition planned in conjunction with a friend, who had at the last moment been forced to alter all his arrangements. Harold March was to have travelled with his friend Horn Fisher on that inland voyage to Willowwood Place, where the Prime Minister was a guest at the moment. More and more people were hearing of Harold March, for his striking political articles were opening to him the doors of larger and larger salons. But he had never met the Prime Minister yet. Scarcely anybody among the general public had ever heard of Horn Fisher, but he had known the Prime Minister all his life. For these reasons, had the two taken the projected journey together, March might have been slightly disposed to hasten it, and Fisher vaguely content to lengthen it out. For Fisher was one of those people who are born knowing the Prime Minister. The knowledge seemed to have no very exhilarant effect, and in his case bore some resemblance to being born tired but he was distinctly annoyed to receive, just as he was doing a little light packing of fishing tackle and cigars for the journey, a telegram from Willowwood asking him to come down at once by train, as the Prime Minister had to leave that night. Fisher knew that his friend the journalist could not possibly start till the next day, and he liked his friend the journalist and had looked forward to a few days on the river. He did not particularly like or dislike the Prime Minister but he intensely disliked the alternative of a few hours in the train. Nevertheless he accepted Prime Ministers as he accepted railway trains, as part of a system which he, at least, was not the revolutionist sent on earth to destroy. So he telephoned to March, asking him, with many apologetic courses and faint dams, to take the boat down the river as arranged, that they might meet at Willow Wood by the time settled. Then he went outside and hailed a taxicab to take him to the railway station. There he paused at the bookstall to add to his light luggage a number of cheap murder stories which he read with great pleasure, and without any premonition that he was about to walk into a stranger story in real life. A little before sunset he arrived, with his light suitcase in hand, before the gate of the long riverside gardens of Willowwood Place one of the smaller seats of sir isaac hook the master of much shipping and many newspapers he entered by the gate giving on the road at the opposite side to the river but there was a mixed quality in all that watery landscape which perpetually reminded a traveller that the river was near white gleams of water would shine suddenly like swords or spears in the green thickets and even in the garden itself, divided into courts and curtained with hedges and high garden trees, there hung everywhere in the air the music of water. The first of the green courts which he entered appeared to be a somewhat neglected croquet lawn in which was a solitary young man playing croquet against himself. Yet he was not an enthusiast for the game, or even for the garden, and his sallow but well-featured face looked rather sullen than otherwise. He was only one of those young men who cannot support the burden of consciousness unless they are doing something, and whose conceptions of doing something are limited to a game of some kind. He was dark and well-dressed in a light holiday fashion, and Fisher recognised him at once as a young man named James Bullen, called, for some unknown reason, Bunker. He was the nephew of Sir Isaac, but, what was much more important at that moment, he was also the private secretary of the Prime Minister. "'Hello, Bunker,' observed Hornfisher, "'You're the sort of man I wanted to see. Has your chief come down yet?' "'He's only staying for dinner,' replied Bullen, with his eye on the yellow ball. "'He's got a great speech to-morrow at Birmingham, and he's going straight through to-night. He's motoring himself there—driving the car, I mean. It's the one thing he's really proud of.' "'You mean you're staying here with your uncle like a good boy?' replied Fisher. But what will the chief do at Birmingham without the epigrams whispered to him by his brilliant secretary? Don't you start ragging me, said the young man called Bunker. I'm only too glad not to go trailing after him. He doesn't know a thing about maps or money or hotels or anything, and I have to dance about like a courier. As for my uncle, as I'm supposed to come into the estate, it's only decent to be here sometimes. Very proper, replied the other. Well, I shall see you later on and, crossing the lawn, he passed out through a gap in the hedge. He was walking across the lawn toward the landing stage on the river, and still felt all around him, under the dome of golden evening, an old-world savour and reverberation in that river-haunted garden. The next square of turf which he crossed seemed at first sight quite deserted, till he saw in the twilight of trees, in one corner of it, a hammock, and in the hammock a man reading a newspaper and swinging one leg over the edge of the net. Him also he hailed by name, and the man slipped to the ground and strolled forward. It seemed fated that he should feel something of the past in the accidents of that place, for the figure might well have been an early Victorian ghost revisiting the ghosts of the croquet hoops and mallets. It was the figure of an elderly man with long whiskers that looked almost fantastic, and a quaint and careful cut of collar and cravat. Having been a fashionable dandy forty years ago, he had managed to preserve the dandyism while ignoring the fashions. A white top hat lay beside the morning post in the hammock behind him. This was the Duke of Westmoreland, the relic of a family really some centuries old and the antiquity was not heraldry, but history. Nobody knew better than Fisher how rare such noblemen are, in fact, and how numerous in fiction. But whether the Duke owed the general respect he enjoyed to the genuineness of his pedigree, or to the fact that he owned a vast amount of very valuable property, was a point about which Mr. Fisher's opinion might have been more interesting to discover. "'You were looking so comfortable,' said Fisher, "'that I thought you must be one of the servants. "'I'm looking for somebody to take this bag of mine. "'I haven't brought a man down, as I came away in a hurry.' "'Nor have I, for that matter,' replied the Duke, with some pride. "'I never do. "'If there's one animal alive I loathe, it's a valet. "'I learned to dress myself at an early age, "'and was supposed to do it decently. "'I may be in my second childhood, "'but I have not got so far as being dressed like a child.' The Prime Minister hasn't brought a valet, he's brought a secretary instead," observed Fisher. devilish inferior job. Didn't I hear that Harker was down here? He's over there on the landing stage, replied the Duke, indifferently, and resumed the study of the morning post. Fisher made his way beyond the last green wall of the garden, on to a sort of towing path looking on the river and a wooden island opposite. There, indeed, he saw a lean, dark figure with a stoop almost like that of a vulture, a posture well known in the law courts as that of Sir John Harker, the Attorney General. His face was lined with headwork, for alone among the three idlers in the garden he was a man who had made his own way, and round his bald brow and hollow temples clung dull red hair, quite flat like plates of copper. I haven't seen my host yet, said Hornfisher, in a slightly more serious tone than he had used to the others, but I suppose I shall meet him at dinner. You can see him now, but you can't meet him, answered Harker. He nodded his head toward one end of the island opposite, and, looking steadily in the same direction, the other guest could see the dome of a bald head and the top of a fishing rod, both equally motionless rising out of the tall undergrowth against the background of the stream beyond. The fisherman seemed to be seated against the stump of a tree, and facing toward the other bank, so that his face could not be seen. But the shape of his head was unmistakable. "'He doesn't like to be disturbed when he's fishing,' continued Harker. "'It's a sort of fad of his to eat nothing but fish, and he's very proud of catching his own.' Of course he's all for simplicity, like so many of these millionaires. He likes to come in saying he's worked for his daily bread like a labourer. Does he explain how he blows all the glass and stuffs all the upholstery? asked Fisher, and makes all the silver forks, and grows all the grapes and peaches, and designs all the patterns on the carpets. I've always heard he was a busy man. I don't think he mentioned it, answered the lawyer. What is the meaning of this social satire? Well, I'm a trifle tired, said Fisher, of the simple life and the strenuous life as lived by our little set. We're all really dependent in nearly everything, and we all make a fuss about being independent in something. The Prime Minister prides himself on doing without a chauffeur, but he can't do without a factotum and jack-of-all-trades. And poor old Bunker has to play the part of a universal genius which God knows he was never meant for. The Duke prides himself on doing without a valet, but for all that he must give a lot of people an infernal lot of trouble to collect such extraordinary old clothes as he wears. He must have them looked up in the British Museum or excavated out of the tombs. That white hat alone must require a sort of expedition fitted out to find it, like the North Pole. And here we have old Hook pretending to produce his own fish when he couldn't produce his own fish knives or fish forks to eat it with. He may be simple about simple things like food, but you bet he's luxurious about luxurious things, especially little things. I don't include you. You've worked too hard to enjoy playing at work. I sometimes think, said Harker, that you conceal a horrid secret of being useful sometimes. Haven't you come down here to see Number One before he goes to Birmingham?" Orne Fisher answered in a lower voice. Yes, and I hope to be lucky enough to catch him before dinner. He's got to see Sir Isaac about something just afterwards. Hello! exclaimed Harker. Sir Isaac's finished his fishing. I know he prides himself on getting up at sunrise and going in at sunset. The old man on the island had indeed risen to his feet, facing round and showing a bush of grey beard with rather small, sunken features, but fierce eyebrows and keen, choleric eyes. Carefully carrying his fishing tackle, he was already making his way back to the mainland across a bridge of flat stepping-stones, a little way down the shallow stream. Then he veered round, coming towards his guests and civilly saluting them. There were several fish in his basket, and he was in a good temper. "'Yes,' he said, acknowledging Fisher's polite expression of surprise. "'I get up before anybody else in the house, I think. The early bird catches the worm.' "'Unfortunately,' said Harker, "'it is the early fish that catches the worm.' "'But the early man catches the fish,' replied the old man, gruffly. "'But from what I hear, Sir Isaac, you're the late man too,' interposed Fisher. "'You do with very little sleep.' "'I never had much time for sleeping,' answered Hook. "'And I shall have to be the late man to-night, anyhow. "'The Prime Minister wants to have a talk,' he tells me. "'And all things considered, I think we'd better be dressing for dinner.' Dinner passed off that evening without a word of politics, and little enough but ceremonial trifles. The Prime Minister, Lord Merivale, who was a long, slim man with curly grey hair, was gravely complimentary to his host about his success as a fisherman, and the skill and patience he displayed. The conversation flowed like the shallow stream through the stepping-stones. It wants patience to wait for them, no doubt, said Sir Isaac, and skill to play them but I'm generally pretty lucky at it." "'Does a big fish ever break the line and get away?' inquired the politician, with respectful interest. "'Not the sort of line I use,' answered Hook, with satisfaction. "'I rather specialise in tackle, as a matter of fact. If he were strong enough to do that, he'd be strong enough to pull me into the river.' "'A great loss to the community,' said the Prime Minister, bowing. Fisher had listened to all these futilities with inward impatience, waiting for his own opportunity, and when the host rose he sprang to his feet with an alertness he rarely showed. He managed to catch Lord Merivale before Sir Isaac bore him off for the final interview. He had only a few words to say, but he wanted to get them said. He said, in a low voice as he opened the door for the Premier, I've seen Montmiret he says that unless we protest immediately on behalf of denmark sweden will certainly seize the ports lord merivale nodded i'm just going to hear what hook has to say about it he said i imagine said fisher with a faint smile that there is very little doubt what he will say about it merivale did not answer but lounged gracefully toward the library whither his host had already preceded him the rest drifted toward the billiard room Fisher merely remarking to the lawyer, They won't be long. We know they're practically in agreement. Hook entirely supports the Prime Minister, assented Harker. Or the Prime Minister entirely supports Hook, said Hornfisher, Fisher, and began idly to knock the balls about on the billiard table. Hornfisher came down next morning in a late and leisurely fashion, as was his reprehensible habit. He had evidently no appetite for catching worms. But the other guests seemed to have felt a similar indifference, and they helped themselves to breakfast from the sideboard at intervals during the hours verging upon lunch. So it was not many hours later when the first sensation of that strange day came upon them. It came in the form of a young man with light hair and a candid expression, who came sculling down the river and disembarked at the landing stage. It was, in fact, no other than Mr. Harold March whose journey had begun far away up the river in the earliest hours of that day. He arrived late in the afternoon, having stopped for tea in a large riverside town, and he had a pink evening paper sticking out of his pocket. He fell on the riverside garden like a quiet and well-behaved thunderbolt. But he was a thunderbolt without knowing it. The first exchange of salutations and introductions was commonplace enough and consisted, indeed, of the inevitable repetition of excuses for the eccentric seclusion of the host. He had gone fishing again, of course, and must not be disturbed till the appointed hour, though he sat within a stone's throw of where they stood. You see, it's his only hobby, observed Harker, apologetically, and, after all, it's his own house, and he's very hospitable in other ways. I'm rather afraid, said Fisher, in a lower voice, that it's becoming more of a mania than a hobby. I know how it is when a man of that age begins to collect things, if it's only collecting those rotten little river fish. You remember Talbot's uncle with his toothpicks and poor old Buzzy and the waste of cigar ashes? Hook has done a lot of big things in his time. The great deal in the Swedish timber trade and the peace conference at Chicago. But I doubt whether he cares now for any of those big things as he cares for those little fish." "'Oh, come, come,' protested the Attorney-General. "'You'll make Mr. March think he's come to call on a lunatic. Believe me, Hook only does it for fun like any other sport. Only he's of the kind that takes his fun sadly. But I bet if there were big news about timber or shipping he would drop his fun and his fish all right." Well, I wonder, said Hornfisher, looking sleepily at the island in the river. By the way, is there any news of anything? asked Harker of Harold March. I see you've got an evening paper, one of those enterprising evening papers that come out in the morning. The beginning of Lord Merivale's Birmingham speech, replied March, handing him the paper. It's only a paragraph, but it seemed to me rather good. Harker took the paper, flapped and refolded it, and looked at the stop-press news. It was, as March had said, only a paragraph, but it was a paragraph that had a peculiar effect on Sir john Harker. His lowering brows lifted with a flicker, and his eyes blinked, and for a moment his leathery jaw was loosened. He looked in some odd fashion like a very old man, then hardening his voice and handing the paper to Fisher without a tremor, he simply said, Well, here's a chance for the bet. You've got your big news to disturb the old man's fishing." Hornfisher Fisher was looking at the paper, and over his more languid and less expressive features a change also seemed to pass. Even that little paragraph had two or three large headlines, and his eyes encountered, Sensational Warning to Sweden, and We Shall Protest. What the devil, he said, and his words softened first to a whisper and then a whistle. "'We must tell old Hook at once, or he'll never forgive us,' said Harker. "'He'll probably want to see number one instantly, though it may be too late now. "'I'm going across to him at once. I bet I'll make him forget his fish, anyhow.' And turning his back, he made his way hurriedly along the riverside to the causeway of flat stones. March was staring at Fisher, in amazement at the effect his pink paper had produced. "'What does it all mean?' he cried. "'I always supposed we should protest in defence of the Danish ports, for their sakes and our own. "'What is all this botheration about Sir Isaac and the rest of you? "'Do you think it bad news?' "'Bad news,' repeated Fisher, with a sort of soft emphasis beyond expression. "'Is it as bad as all that?' asked his friend at last. "'As bad as all that?' repeated Fisher. "'Why, of course it's as good as it can be. "'It's great news. "'It's glorious news.' That's where the devil of it comes in, to knock us all silly. It's admirable, it's inestimable. It's also quite incredible. He gazed again at the grey and green colours of the island and the river, and his rather dreary eye travelled slowly round to the hedges and the lawns. I felt this garden was a sort of dream, he said, and I suppose I must be dreaming, but there is grass growing and water moving, and something impossible has happened. Even as he spoke the dark figure with a stoop like a vulture appeared in the gap of the hedge just above him. You've won your bet, said Harker, in a harsh and almost croaking voice. The old fool cares for nothing but fishing. He cursed me and told me he would talk no politics. I thought it might be so, said Fisher modestly. What are you going to do next? I shall use the old idiot's telephone anyhow, replied the lawyer. I must find out exactly what has happened. I've got to speak for the government myself to-morrow. And he hurried away toward the house. In the silence that followed, a very bewildering silence so far as March was concerned, they saw the quaint figure of the Duke of Westmorland with his white hat and whiskers, approaching them across the garden. Fisher instantly stepped toward him with the pink paper in his hand, and with a few words pointed out the apocalyptic paragraph. The duke, who had been walking slowly, stood quite still, and for some seconds he looked like a tailor's dummy, standing and staring outside some antiquated shop. Then March heard his voice, and it was high and almost hysterical. But he must see it, he must be made to understand, it cannot have been put to him properly. Then with a certain recovery of fullness and even pomposity in the voice, I shall go and tell him myself. Among the queer incidents of that afternoon, March always remembered something almost comical about the clear picture of the old gentleman in his wonderful white hat carefully stepping from stone to stone across the river, like a figure crossing the traffic in Piccadilly. Then he disappeared behind the trees of the island, and March and Fisher turned to meet the Attorney-General, who was coming out of the house with a visage of grim assurance. Everybody is saying, he said, that the Prime Minister has made the greatest speech of his life. Peroration and loud and prolonged cheers. Corrupt financiers and heroic peasants, we will not desert Denmark again. Fisher nodded and turned away toward the towing path, where he saw the Duke returning with a rather dazed expression. In answer to questions, he said in a husky and confidential voice, I really think our poor friend cannot be himself he refused to listen he uh, suggested that i might frighten the fish a keen ear might have detected a murmur from mr fisher on the subject of a white hat but sir john harker struck it more decisively fisher was quite right i didn't believe it myself but it's quite clear that the old fellow is fixed on his fishing notion by now if the house caught fire behind him he would hardly move till sunset Fisher had continued his stroll toward the higher embanked ground of the towing-path, and he now swept a long and searching gaze not toward the island, but toward the distant wooded heights that were the walls of the valley. An evening sky as clear as that of the previous day was settling down all over the dim landscape, but toward the west it was now red rather than gold. There was scarcely any sound but the monotonous music of the river. Then came the sound of a half-stifled exclamation from Horn Fisher, and Harold March looked up at him in wonder. You spoke of bad news, said Fisher. Well, there is really bad news now. I'm afraid this is a bad business. What bad news do you mean? asked his friend, conscious of something strange and sinister in his voice. The sun has set, answered Fisher. He went on with the air of one conscious of having said something fatal. We must get somebody to go across whom he will really listen to. He may be mad, but there's method in his madness. There nearly always is method in madness. It's what drives men mad, being methodical. And he never goes on sitting there after sunset, with the whole place getting dark. Where's his nephew? I believe he's really fond of his nephew. Look, cried March abruptly, why, he's been across already. There he is coming back. And looking up the river once more, they saw, dark against the sunset reflections, the figure of James Bullen stepping hastily and rather clumsily from stone to stone. Once he slipped on a stone with a slight splash. When he rejoined the group on the bank, his olive face was unnaturally pale. The other four men had already gathered on the same spot and almost simultaneously were calling out to him. "What does he say now?" "Nothing." he says, "nothing." Fisher looked at the young man steadily for a moment, then he started from his immobility and making a motion to march to follow him, himself strode down to the river crossing. In a few moments they were on the little beaten track that ran round the wooded island to the other side of it where the fishermen sat. Then they stood and looked at him, without a word. Sir Isaac Hook was still sitting propped up against the stump of the tree, and that for the best of reasons. A length of his own infallible fishing line was twisted and tightened, twice round his throat, then twice round the wooden prop behind him. The leading investigator ran forward and touched the fisherman's hand, and it was as cold as a fish. The sun has set, said Hornfisher, in the same terrible tones, and he will never see it rise again. Ten minutes afterwards the five men, shaken by such a shock, were again together in the garden, looking at one another with white but watchful faces. The lawyer seemed the most alert of the group, he was articulate if somewhat abrupt. We must leave the body as it is, and telephone for the police, he said. I think my own authority will stretch to examining the servants' and the poor fellow's papers to see if there is anything that concerns them. Of course, none of you gentlemen must leave this place." Perhaps there was something in his rapid and rigorous legality that suggested the closing of a net or trap. Anyhow, young Bullen suddenly broke down, or perhaps blew up, for his voice was like an explosion in the silent garden. "'I never touched him,' he cried. "'I swear I had nothing to do with it.' Who said you had? demanded Harker with a hard eye. Why do you cry out before you're hurt? Because you all look at me like that, cried the young man, angrily. Do you think I don't know you're always talking about my damned debts and expectations? Rather to March's surprise, Fisher had drawn away from this first collision, leading the Duke with him to another part of the garden. When he was out of earshot of the others, he said, with a curious simplicity of manner, Westmoreland, I'm going straight to the point." Well, said the other, staring at him stolidly. You have a motive for killing him, said Fisher. The Duke continued to stare, but he seemed unable to speak. I hope you had a motive for killing him, continued Fisher mildly. You see, it's rather a curious situation. If you have a motive for murdering, you probably didn't murder. But if you hadn't any motive, why then, perhaps you did. What on earth are you talking about? demanded the duke, violently. It's quite simple, said Fisher. When you went across, he was either alive or dead. If he was alive, it might be you who killed him. Or why should you have held your tongue about his death? But if he was dead, and you had a reason for killing him, you might have held your tongue for fear of being accused. Then after a silence, he added abstractedly, Cyprus is a beautiful place, I believe, romantic scenery and romantic people, very intoxicating for a young man. The Duke suddenly clenched his hands and said thickly, Well, I had a motive. Then you're all right, said Fisher, holding out his hand with an air of huge relief. I was pretty sure you wouldn't really do it. You had a fright when you saw it done, as was only natural, like a bad dream come true, wasn't it? While this curious conversation was passing, Arker had gone into the house, disregarding the demonstrations of the sulky nephew, and came back presently with a new air of animation and a sheaf of papers in his hand. I've telephoned for the police, he said, stopping to speak to Fisher, but I think I've done most of their work for them. I believe I've found out the truth. There's a paper here, he stopped, for Fisher was looking at him with a singular expression, and it was Fisher who spoke next. Are there any papers that are not there, I wonder? I mean, that are not there now? After a pause, he added, Let us have the cards on the table. When you went through his papers in such a hurry, Harker, weren't you looking for something to—to make sure it shouldn't be found? Harker did not turn a red hair on his hard head, but he looked at the other out of the corners of his eyes. And, I suppose, went on Fisher smoothly, that is why you, too, told us lies about having found Hook alive. You knew there was something to show that you might have killed him, and you didn't dare tell us he was killed. But believe me, it's much better to be honest now. Arker's haggard face suddenly lit up as if with infernal flames. Honest, he cried, it's not so damn fine of you fellows to be honest. You're all born with silver spoons in your mouths and then you swagger about with everlasting virtue, because you haven't got other people's spoons in your pockets. But I was born in a Pimlico lodging-house, and I had to make my spoon, and there'd be plenty to say I only spoiled a horn or an honest man. And if a struggling man staggers a bit over the line in his youth, in the lower parts of the law which are pretty dingy anyhow, there's always some old vampire to hang on to him all his life for it. Guatemala and Golconda's, wasn't it?" said Fisher, sympathetically. Harker suddenly shuddered. Then he said, "'I believe you must know everything like God Almighty.' "'I know too much,' said Hornfisher, "'and all the wrong things.' The other three men were drawing nearer to them. But before they came too near, Harker said in a voice that had recovered all its firmness, Yes, I did destroy a paper, but I really did find a paper too, and I believe that it clears us all.' "'Very well,' said Fisher, in a louder and more cheerful tone. "'Let us all have the benefit of it.' On the very top of Sir Isaac's papers, explained Harker, there was a threatening letter from a man named Hugo. It threatens to kill our unfortunate friend very much in the way that he was actually killed. It is a wild letter full of taunts. You can see it for yourselves but it makes a particular point of poor Hook's habit of fishing from the island. Above all, the man professes to be writing from a boat, and, since we alone went across to him, and he smiled in a rather ugly fashion, the crime must have been committed by a man passing in a boat. "'Why, dear me!' cried the Duke, with something almost amounting to animation. "'Why, I remember the man called Hugo quite well. He was a sort of body-servant and bodyguard of Sir Isaac.' You see, Sir Isaac was in some fear of assault. He was-he was not very popular with several people. Hugo was discharged after some row or other, but I remember him well. He was a great big Hungarian fellow with great moustaches that stood out on each side of his face. A door opened in the darkness of Harold March's memory, or rather oblivion, and showed a shining landscape like that of a lost dream. It was rather a waterscape than a landscape, a thing of flooded meadows and low trees and the dark archway of a bridge. And for one instant he saw again the man with moustaches like dark horns leap up on to the bridge and disappear. "'Good heavens!' he cried, "'why, I met the murderer this morning!' Horn Fisher and Harold March had their day on the river after all. The little group broke up when the police arrived. They declared that the coincidence of March's evidence had cleared the whole company and clinched the case against the flying Hugo. Whether that Hungarian fugitive would ever be caught appeared to Hornfisher to be highly doubtful. Nor can it be pretended that he displayed any very demoniac detective energy in the matter, as he leaned back in the boat cushions, smoking and watching the swaying reeds slide past. It was a very good notion to hop up on to the bridge," he said. An empty boat means very little. He hasn't been seen to land on either bank, and he's walked off the bridge without walking on to it, so to speak. He's got twenty-four hours' start, his moustaches will disappear, and then he will disappear. I think there is every hope of his escape. Hope, repeated March, and stopped sculling for an instant. Yes, hope, repeated the other. To begin with, I'm not going to be exactly consumed with Corsican revenge because somebody has killed Hook. Perhaps you may guess by this time what Hook was. A damned blood-sucking blackmailer was that simple, strenuous, self-made captain of industry. He had secrets against nearly everybody. One against poor old Westmorland about an early marriage in Cyprus that might have put the Duchess in a queer position, and one against Harker about some flutter with his client's money when he was a young solicitor. That's why they went to pieces, when they found him murdered, of course. They felt as if they'd done it in a dream. But I admit I have another reason for not wanting our Hungarian friend actually hanged for the murder." "'And what is that?' asked his friend. "'Only that he didn't commit the murder,' answered Fisher. Harold March laid down the oars and let the boat drift for a moment. "'Do you know, I was half expecting something like that,' he said. It was quite irrational, but it was hanging about in the atmosphere like thunder in the air." "'On the contrary, it's finding Hugo guilty that's irrational,' replied Fisher. "'Don't you see that they're condemning him for the very reason for which they acquit everybody else? Harker and Westmoreland were silent because they found him murdered, and knew there were papers that made them look like the murderers. Well, so did Hugo find him murdered, and so did Hugo know there was a paper that would make him look like the murderer. He had written it himself the day before. But in that case, said March, frowning, at what sort of unearthly hour in the morning was the murder really committed? It was barely daylight when I met him at the bridge, and that's some way above the island. The answer is very simple, replied Fisher. The crime was not committed in the morning. The crime was not committed on the island. March stared at the shining water without replying, Fisher resumed like one who has been asked a question. Every intelligent murder involves taking advantage of some one uncommon feature in a common situation. The feature here was the fancy of old Hook for being the first man up every morning, his fixed routine as an angler, and his annoyance at being disturbed. The murderer strangled him in his own house after dinner on the night before, carried his corpse with all his fishing-tackle across the stream in the dead of night, tied him to the tree and left him there under the stars. It was a dead man who sat fishing there all day. Then the murderer went back to the house, or rather to the garage, and went off in his motor car. The murderer drove his own motor car. Fisher glanced at his friend's face and went on You look horrified, and the thing is horrible, but other things are horrible too. If some obscure man had been haggridden by a blackmailer, And had his family life ruined, you wouldn't think the murder of his persecutor the most inexcusable of murders. Is it any worse when a whole great nation is set free as well as a family? By this warning to Sweden we shall probably prevent war and not precipitate it, and save many thousand lives, rather more valuable than the life of that viper. Oh, I'm not talking sophistry or seriously justifying the thing but the slavery that held him and his country was a thousand times less justifiable. If I had really been sharp, I should have guessed it from his smooth, deadly smiling at dinner that night. Do you remember that silly talk about how old Isaac could always play his fish? In a pretty hellish sense he was a fisher of men. Harold March took the oars and began to row again. I remember, he said, and about how a big fish might break the line and get away. End of chapter. The Man Who Knew Too Much by G. K. Chesterton. Read for LibriVox.org by Martin Clifton. Chapter 6 The Hole in the Wall. Two men, the one an architect and the other an archaeologist, met on the steps of the great house at Prior's Park, and their host, Lord Bulmer, in his breezy way thought it natural to introduce them it must be confessed that he was hazy as well as breezy, and had no very clear connection in his mind beyond the sense that an architect and an archaeologist begin with the same series of letters. The world must remain in a reverent doubt as to whether he would, on the same principles, have presented a diplomatist to a dipsomaniac, or a ratiocinator to a rat-catcher, He was a big, fair, bull-necked young man, abounding in outward gestures, unconsciously flapping his gloves and flourishing his stick. "'You two ought to have something to talk about,' he said cheerfully, "'old buildings and all that sort of thing. This is rather an old building, by the way, though I say it who shouldn't. I must ask you to excuse me a moment. I've got to go and see about the cards for this Christmas romp my sister's arranging.' We hope to see you all there, of course. Juliet wants it to be a fancy dress affair, abbots and crusaders and all that. My ancestors, I suppose, after all.' "'I trust the abbot was not an ancestor,' said the archaeological gentleman, with a smile. "'Only a sort of great-uncle, I imagine,' answered the other, laughing. Then his rather rambling eye rolled round the ordered landscape in front of the house an artificial sheet of water ornamented with an antiquated nymph in the centre, and surrounded by a park of tall trees, now grey and black and frosty, for it was in the depth of a severe winter. "'It's getting jolly cold,' his lordship continued. "'My sister hopes we shall have some skating as well as dancing.' "'If the crusaders come in full armour, said the other, "'you must be careful not to drown your ancestors.' Oh, there's no fear of that, answered Bulmer. This precious lake of ours is not two feet deep anywhere. And, with one of his flourishing gestures, he stuck his stick into the water to demonstrate its shallowness. They could see the short end bent in the water, so that he seemed for a moment to lean his large weight on a breaking staff. The worst you can expect is to see an abbot sit down rather suddenly, he added, turning away. Well, au revoir. I'll let you know about it later. The archaeologist and the architect were left on the great stone steps smiling at each other. But whatever their common interests they presented a considerable personal contrast, and the fanciful might even have found some contradiction in each considered individually. The former, a Mr. James Haddo, came from a drowsy den in the Inns of Court, full of leather and parchment, for the law was his profession and history only his hobby. He was, indeed, among other things, the solicitor and agent of the Prior's Park estate. But he himself was far from drowsy, and seemed remarkably wide-awake, with shrewd and prominent blue eyes, and red hair brushed as neatly as his very neat costume. The latter, whose name was Leonard Crane, came straight from a crude and almost cockney office of builders and house-agents in the neighbouring suburb. Sunning itself at the end of a new row of jerry-built houses, with plans in very bright colours and notices in very large letters. But a serious observer, at a second glance, might have seen in his eyes something of that shining sleep that is called vision. And his yellow hair, while not affectedly long, was unaffectedly untidy. It was a manifest, if melancholy, truth that the architect was an artist but the artistic temperament was far from explaining him. There was something else about him that was not definable, but which some even felt to be dangerous. Despite his dreaminess, he would sometimes surprise his friends with arts and even sports apart from his ordinary life, like memories of some previous existence. On this occasion, nevertheless, he hastened to disclaim any authority on the other man's hobby. "'I mustn't appear on false pretenses,' he said with a smile. "'I hardly even know what an archaeologist is, except that a rather rusty remnant of Greeks suggested that he is a man who studies old things.' "'Yes,' replied Haddo grimly. "'An archaeologist is a man who studies old things and finds they are new.' Crane looked at him steadily for a moment, and then smiled again. Dare one suggest, he said, that some of the things we have been talking about are among the old things that turn out not to be old? His companion also was silent for a moment, and the smile on his rugged face was fainter, as he replied quietly, The wall round the park is really old. The one gate in it is Gothic, and I cannot find any trace of destruction or restoration. But the house and the estate generally, well, the romantic ideas read into these things are often rather recent romances, things almost like fashionable novels. For instance, the very name of this place, Pryors Park, makes everybody think of it as a moonlit medieval abbey. I dare say the spiritualists by this time have discovered the ghost of a monk there, but according to the only authoritative study of the matter I can find, the place was simply called Pryors, as any rural place is called Podgers. It was the house of a Mr. Prior—a farmhouse, probably—that stood here at some time or other, and was a local landmark. Oh, there are a great many examples of the same thing here and everywhere else. This suburb of ours used to be a village, and because some of the people slurred the name and pronounced it Hollywell, many a minor poet indulged in fancies about a holy well, with spells and fairies and all the rest of it filling the suburban drawing-rooms with Celtic twilight. Whereas anyone acquainted with the facts knows that hole in wall simply means the hole in the wall, and probably referred to some quite trivial accident. That's what I mean when I say that we don't so much find old things as we find new ones. Crane seemed to have grown somewhat inattentive to the little lecture on antiquities and novelties, and the cause of his restlessness was soon apparent, and indeed approaching. Lord Bulmer's sister, Juliet Bray, was coming slowly across the lawn, accompanied by one gentleman and followed by two others. The young architect was in the illogical condition of mind in which he preferred three to one. The man walking with the lady was no other than the eminent Prince Borodino, who was at least as famous as a distinguished diplomatist ought to be in the interests of what is called secret diplomacy he had been paying a round of visits at various english country houses and exactly what he was doing for diplomacy at Prior's Park was as much a secret as any diplomatist could desire the obvious thing to say of his appearance was that he would have been extremely handsome if he had not been entirely bald but indeed that would itself be a rather bald way of putting it Fantastic as it sounds, it would fit the case better to say that people would have been surprised to see hair growing on him, as surprised as if they had found hair growing on the bust of a Roman Emperor. His tall figure was buttoned up in a tight-waisted fashion that rather accentuated his potential bulk, and he wore a red flower in his buttonhole. Of the two men walking behind, one was also bald, but in a more partial, and also a more premature fashion, for his drooping moustache was still yellow, and if his eyes were somewhat heavy it was with languor and not with age. It was Horn Fisher, and he was talking as easily and idly about everything as he always did. His companion was a more striking and even more sinister figure, and he had the added importance of being Lord Bulmer's oldest and most intimate friend. He was generally known with a severe simplicity as Mr Brain. But it was understood that he had been a judge and police official in India, and that he had enemies who had represented his measures against crime as themselves almost criminal. He was a brown skeleton of a man, with dark, deep, sunken eyes, and a black moustache that hid the meaning of his mouth. Though he had the look of one wasted by some tropical disease, his movements were much more alert than those of his lounging companion. It's all settled, announced the lady with great animation when they came within hailing distance. You've all got to put on masquerade things, and very likely skates as well. Though the prince says that they don't go with it, but we don't care about that. It's freezing already, and we don't often get such a chance in England. Even in India we don't exactly skate all the year round, observed Mr. Brain. And even Italy is not primarily associated with ice, said the Italian. Italy is primarily associated with ices, remarked Mr. Hornfisher. I mean with ice-cream men. Most people in this country imagine that Italy is entirely populated with ice-cream men and organ-grinders. There certainly are a lot of them. Perhaps they are an invading army in disguise. How do you know they are not the secret emissaries of our diplomacy? asked the Prince, with a slightly scornful smile. An army of organ-grinders might pick up hints, and their monkeys might pick up all sorts of things. The organs are an organised fact, said the flippant Mr. Fisher. Well, I've known it pretty cold before now in Italy, and even in India, up on the Himalayan slopes. The ice on our own little round pond will be quite cosy by comparison. Juliet Bray was an attractive lady with dark hair and eyebrows and dancing eyes, and there was a geniality and even generosity in her rather imperious ways. In most matters she could command her brother, though that nobleman, like many other men of vague ideas, was not without a touch of the bully when he was at bay. She could certainly command her guests, even to the extent of decking out the most respectable and reluctant of them with her mediaeval masquerade and it really seemed as if she could command the elements also, like a witch, for the weather steadily hardened and sharpened. That night the ice of the lake, glimmering in the moonlight, was like a marble floor, and they had begun to dance and skate on it before it was dark. Pryors Park, or more properly the surrounding district of Hollinwall, was a country seat that had become a suburb. Having once had only a dependent village at its doors, it now found outside all its doors the signals of the expansion of London. Mr. Haddo, who was engaged in historical researches both in the library and the locality, could find little assistance in the latter. He had already realised from the documents that Pryor's Park had originally been something like Pryor's Farm, named after some local figure but the new social conditions were all against his tracing the story by its traditions. Had any of the real rustics remained, he would probably have found some lingering legend of Mr. Pryor, however remote he might be. But the new nomadic population of clerks and artisans constantly shifting their homes from one suburb to another, or their children from one school to another, could have no corporate continuity they had all the forgetfulness of history that goes everywhere with the extension of education. Nevertheless, when he came out of the library next morning and saw the wintry trees standing round the frozen pond like a black forest, he felt he might well have been far in the depths of the country. The old wall running round the park kept that enclosure itself still entirely rural and romantic, and one could easily imagine that the depths of that dark forest faded away indefinitely into distant vales and hills. The grey and black and silver of the wintry wood were all the more severe or sombre as a contrast to the coloured carnival groups that already stood on and around the frozen pool, for the house-party had already flung themselves impatiently into fancy dress, and the lawyer, with his neat black suit and red hair, was the only modern figure among them. Aren't you going to dress up? asked Juliet, indignantly, shaking at him a horned and towering blue headdress of the fourteenth century, which framed her face very becomingly, fantastic as it was. Everybody here has to be in the Middle Ages. Even Mr. Brain has put on a sort of brown dressing-gown and says he's a monk. And Mr. Fisher got hold of some old potato sacks in the kitchen and sewed them together. He's supposed to be a monk too. As to the prince, he's perfectly glorious, in great crimson robes as a cardinal. He looks as if he could poison everybody. You simply must be something. I will be something later in the day, he replied. At present I am nothing but an antiquary and an attorney. I have to see your brother presently about some legal business, and also some local investigations he asked me to make. I must look a little like a steward when I give an account of my stewardship. "'Oh, but my brother has dressed up,' cried the girl, "'very much so. No end, if I may say so. Why, he's bearing down on you now in all his glory.' The noble lord was indeed marching toward them, in a magnificent sixteenth-century costume of purple and gold, with a gold-hilted sword and a plumed cap, and manners to match. Indeed there was something more than his usual expansiveness of bodily action in his appearance at that moment. It almost seemed, so to speak, that the plumes of his hat had gone to his head. He flapped his great gold-lined cloak like the wings of a fairy king in a pantomime. He even drew his sword with a flourish and waved it about as he did his walking-stick. In the light of after events there seemed to be something monstrous and ominous about that exuberance, something of the spirit that is called Fae. At the time, it merely crossed a few people's minds that he might possibly be drunk. As he strode towards his sister, the first figure he passed was that of Leonard Crane, clad in Lincoln green, with the horn and baldric and sword appropriate to Robin Hood. For he was standing nearest to the lady, where, indeed, he might have been found during a disproportionate part of the time. He had displayed one of his buried talents in the matter of skating and now that the skating was over, seemed disposed to prolong the partnership. Boisterous Bulmer playfully made a pass at him with his drawn sword, going forward with the lunge in the proper fencing fashion, and making a somewhat too familiar Shakespearean quotation about a rodent and a Venetian coin. Probably in Crane also there was a subdued excitement just then. Anyhow, in one flash, he had drawn his sword and parried, and then, suddenly, to the surprise of everyone, Bulmer's weapon seemed to spring out of his hand into the air and rolled away on the ringing ice. "'Well, I never,' said the lady, as if with justifiable indignation. "'You never told me you could fence, too.' Bulmer put up his sword with an air rather bewildered than annoyed, which increased the impression of something irresponsible in his mood at the moment. Then he turned rather abruptly to his lawyer, saying, "'We can settle up about the estate after dinner.' I've missed nearly all the skating as it is, and I doubt if the ice will hold till tomorrow night. I think I shall get up early and have a spin by myself. You won't be disturbed with my company, said Hornfisher in his weary fashion. If I have to begin the day with ice in the American fashion, I prefer it in smaller quantities. But no early hours for me in December. The early bird catches the cold. "'Oh, I shan't die of catching cold,' answered Bulmer, and laughed. A considerable group of the skating party had consisted of the guests staying at the house, and the rest had tailed off in twos and threes some time before most of the guests began to retire for the night. Neighbours, always invited to Pryor's Park on such occasions, went back to their own houses in motors or on foot, The legal and archaeological gentleman had returned to the Inns of Court by a late train to get a paper called for during his consultation with his client. And most of the other guests were drifting and lingering at various stages on their way up to bed. Horn Fisher, as if to deprive himself of any excuse for his refusal of early rising, had been the first to retire to his room. But, sleepy as he looked, he couldn't sleep. He had picked up from a table the book of antiquarian topography, in which Haddo had found his first hints about the origin of the local name. And, being a man with a quiet and quaint capacity for being interested in anything, he began to read it steadily, making notes now and then of details on which his previous reading left him with a certain doubt about his present conclusions. His room was the one nearest to the lake in the centre of the woods and was therefore the quietest, and none of the last echoes of the evening's festivity could reach him. He had followed carefully the argument which established the derivation from Mr. Pryor's farm and the hole in the wall, and disposed of any fashionable fancy about monks and magic wells, when he began to be conscious of a noise audible in the frozen silence of the night. It was not a particularly loud noise, but it seemed to consist of a series of thuds or heavy blows such as might be struck on a wooden door by a man seeking to enter. They were followed by something like a faint creak or crack, as if the obstacle had either been opened or had given way. He opened his own bedroom door and listened, but as he heard talk and laughter all over the lower floors, he had no reason to fear that a summons would be neglected or the house left without protection. He went to his open window, looking out over the frozen pond and the moonlit statue in the middle of their circle of darkling woods, and listened again. But silence had returned to that silent place, and, after straining his ears for a considerable time, he could hear nothing but the solitary hoot of a distant departing train. Then he reminded himself how many nameless noises can be heard by the wakeful during the most ordinary night and, shrugging his shoulders, went wearily to bed. He awoke suddenly and sat up in bed with his ears filled as with thunder, with the throbbing echoes of a rending cry. He remained rigid for a moment and then sprang out of bed, throwing on the loose gown of sacking he had worn all day. He went first to the window which was open, but covered with a thick curtain, so that his room was still completely dark. But when he tossed the curtain aside and put his head out, he saw that a grey and silver daybreak had already appeared behind the black woods that surrounded the little lake. And that was all that he did see. Though the sound had certainly come in through the open window from this direction, the whole scene was still and empty under the morning light as under the moonlight. Then the long, rather lackadaisical hand he had laid on a window-sill gripped it tighter, as if to master a tremor and his peering blue eyes grew bleak with fear. It may seem that his emotion was exaggerated and needless, considering the effort of common sense by which he had conquered his nervousness about the noise on the previous night. But that had been a very different sort of noise. It might have been made by half a hundred things, from the chopping of wood to the breaking of bottles. There was only one thing in nature from which could come the sound that echoed through the dark house at daybreak. It was the awful, articulate voice of man, and it was something worse, for he knew what man. He knew also that it had been a shout for help. It seemed to him that he had heard the very word, but the word, short as it was, had been swallowed up, as if the man had been stifled or snatched away, even as he spoke. Only the mocking reverberations of it remained even in his memory but he had no doubt of the original voice. He had no doubt that the great bull's voice of Francis Bray, Baron Bulmer, had been heard for the last time between the darkness and the lifting dawn. How long he stood there he never knew, but he was startled into life by the first living thing that he saw stirring in that half-frozen landscape. Along the path beside the lake, and immediately under his window, A figure was walking slowly and softly, but with great composure. A stately figure in robes of a splendid scarlet. It was the Italian prince, still in his cardinal's costume. Most of the company had indeed lived in their costumes for the last day or two, and Fisher himself had assumed his frock of sacking as a convenient dressing-gown. But there seemed nevertheless something unusually finished and formal in the way of an early bird about this magnificent red cockatoo. It was as if the early bird had been up all night. "'What's the matter?' he called sharply, leaning out of the window, and the Italian turned up his great yellow face like a mask of brass. "'We had better discuss it downstairs,' said Prince Borodino. Fisher ran downstairs and encountered the great red-robed figure entering the doorway and blocking the entrance with his bulk. Did you hear that cry? demanded Fisher. I heard a noise and I came out, answered the diplomatist, and his face was too dark in the shadow for its expression to be read. It was Bulmer's voice, insisted Fisher. I'll swear it was Bulmer's voice. Did you know him well? asked the other. The question seemed irrelevant, though it was not illogical, and Fisher could only answer in a random fashion that he knew Lord Bulmer only slightly. Nobody seems to have known him well, continued the Italian in level tones. Nobody except that man Brain. Brain is rather older than Bulmer, but I fancy they shared a good many secrets. Fisher moved abruptly, as if waking from a momentary trance, and said in a new and more vigorous voice, but look here, hadn't we better get outside, and see if anything has happened?" The ice seems to be thawing, said the other, almost with indifference. When they emerged from the house, dark stains and stars in the grey field of ice did indeed indicate that the frost was breaking up, as their host had prophesied the day before, and the very memory of yesterday brought back the mystery of to-day. He knew there would be a thaw, observed the Prince. He went out skating quite early on purpose. Did he call out because he landed in the water, do you think? Fisher looked puzzled. Bulmer was the last man to bellow like that, because he got his boots wet. And that's all he could do here. The water would hardly come up to the calf of a man of his size. You can see the flat weeds on the floor of the lake, as if it were through a thin pane of glass. No, if Bulmer had only broken the ice, he wouldn't have said much at the moment, though possibly a good deal afterwards. We should have found him stamping and damming up and down this path, and calling for clean boots. Let us hope we shall find him as happily employed, remarked the diplomatist. In that case, the voice must have come out of the wood. I'll swear it didn't come out of the house, said Fisher, and the two disappeared together into the twilight of wintry trees. The plantation stood dark against the fiery colours of sunrise, a black fringe having that feathery appearance which makes trees, when they are bare, the very reverse of rugged. Hours and hours afterwards, when the same dense but delicate margin was dark against the greenish colours opposite the sunset, the search thus begun at sunrise had not come to an end. By successive stages, and to slowly gathering groups of the company, it became apparent that the most extraordinary of all gaps had appeared in the party. The guests could find no trace of their host anywhere. The servants reported that his bed had been slept in, and his skates and his fancy costume were gone, as if he had risen early for the purpose he had himself avowed. But from the top of the house to the bottom, from the walls round the park to the pond in the centre, there was no trace of Lord Bulmer dead or alive. Fisher realised that a chilling premonition had already prevented him from expecting to find the man alive. But his bald brow was wrinkled over an entirely new and unnatural problem—in not finding the man at all. He considered the possibility of Bulmer having gone off of his own accord, for some reason. But after fully weighing it, he finally dismissed it. It was inconsistent with the unmistakable voice heard at daybreak and with many other practical obstacles. There was only one gateway in the ancient and lofty wall round the small park. The lodgekeeper kept it locked till late in the morning, and the lodgekeeper had seen no one pass. Fisher was fairly sure that he had before him a mathematical problem in an enclosed space. His instinct had been from the first so attuned to the tragedy that it would have been almost a relief to him to find the corpse he would have been grieved but not horrified to come on the nobleman's body dangling from one of his own trees as from a gibbet or floating in his own pool like a pallid weed what horrified him was to find nothing he soon became conscious that he was not alone even in his most individual and isolated experiments he often found a figure following him like his shadow in silent and almost secret clearings in the plantation or outlying nooks and corners of the old wall The dark, moustached mouth was as mute as the deep eyes were mobile, darting incessantly hither and thither, but it was clear that brain of the Indian police had taken up the trail like an old hunter after a tiger. Seeing that he was the only personal friend of the vanished man, this seemed natural enough, and Fisher resolved to deal frankly with him. This silence is rather a social strain, he said. May I break the ice by talking about the weather? which, by the way, has already broken the ice. I know that breaking the ice might be a rather melancholy metaphor in this case. I don't think so, replied Brain shortly. I don't fancy the ice had much to do with it. I don't see how it could. What would you propose doing? asked Fisher. Well, we've sent for the authorities, of course. But I hope to find something out before they come, replied the Anglo-Indian. I can't say I have much hope from police methods in this country too much red tape, habeas corpus, and that sort of thing. What we want is to see that nobody bolts. The nearest we could get to it would be to collect the company and count them, so to speak. Nobody's left lately, except that lawyer who was poking about for antiquities." "'Oh, he's out of it. He left last night,' answered the other. Eight hours after Bulmer's chauffeur saw his lawyer off by the train, I heard Bulmer's own voice, as plain as I hear yours now. I suppose you don't believe in spirits, said the man from India. After a pause he added, There's somebody else I should like to find, before we go after a fellow with an alibi in the inner temple. What's become of that fellow in green, the architect, dressed up as a forester, I haven't seen him about? Mr Brain managed to secure his assembly of all the distracted company before the arrival of the police. But when he first began to comment once more on the young architect's delay in putting in an appearance, he found himself in the presence of a minor mystery and a psychological development of an entirely unexpected kind. Juliet Bray had confronted the catastrophe of her brother's disappearance with a somber stoicism in which there was perhaps more paralysis than pain. But when the other question came to the surface, she was both agitated and angry. We don't want to jump to any conclusions about anybody," Brain was saying in his staccato style. But we should like to know a little more about Mr. Crane. Nobody seems to know much about him or where he comes from, and it seems a sort of coincidence that yesterday he actually crossed swords with poor Bulmer, and could have struck him too, since he showed himself the better swordsman. Of course, that may be an accident and couldn't possibly be called a case against anybody, but then we haven't the means to make a real case against anybody. Till the police come we are only a pack of very amateur sleuth-hounds.' "'And I think you're a pack of snobs,' said Juliet. Because Mr Crane is a genius who's made his own way, you try to suggest he's a murderer without daring to say so. Because he wore a toy sword and happened to know how to use it, you want us to believe he used it like a bloodthirsty maniac for no reason in the world. And because he could have hit my brother and didn't, you deduce that he did. That's the sort of way you argue. And as for his having disappeared, you're wrong in that as you are in everything else, for here he comes. And indeed the green figure of the fictitious Robin Hood slowly detached itself from the grey background of the trees and came toward them as she spoke. He approached the group slowly but with composure. But he was decidedly pale, and the eyes of Brain and Fisher had already taken in one detail of the green-clad figure more clearly than all the rest. The horn still swung from his baldric, but the sword was gone. Rather to the surprise of the company, Brain did not follow up the question thus suggested, but while retaining an air of leading the inquiry, had also an appearance of changing the subject. Now we're all assembled, he observed quietly, there is a question I want to ask to begin with. Did anybody here actually see Lord Bulmer this morning? Leonard Crane turned his pale face round the circle of faces till he came to Juliet's. Then he compressed his lips a little and said, Yes, I saw him. Was he alive and well? asked Brayne quickly. How was he dressed? He appeared exceedingly well, replied Crane, with a curious intonation. He was dressed as he was yesterday, in that purple costume copied from the portrait of his ancestor in the sixteenth century. He had his skates in his hand. And his sword at his side, I suppose, asked the questioner. Where is your own sword, Mr. Crane? I threw it away. In the singular silence that ensued, the train of thoughts in many minds became involuntarily a series of coloured pictures. They had grown used to their fanciful garments looking more gay and gorgeous against the dark grey and streaky silver of the forest, so that the moving figures glowed like stained-glass saints walking. The effect had been more fitting because so many of them had idly parodied pontifical or monastic dress, but the most arresting attitude that remained in their memories had been anything but merely monastic. That of the moment when the figure in bright green and the other in vivid violet had for a moment made a silver cross of their crossing swords. Even when it was a jest, it had been something of a drama, and it was a strange and sinister thought that, in the grey daybreak, the same figures in the same posture might have been repeated as a tragedy. Did you quarrel with him? asked Brain suddenly. Yes, replied the immovable man in green, or he quarrelled with me. Why did he quarrel with you? asked the investigator. And Leonard Crane made no reply. Old Fisher, curiously enough, had only given half his attention to this crucial cross-examination. His heavy-lidded eyes had languidly followed the figure of Prince Borodino, who at this stage had strolled away towards the fringe of the wood, and, after a pause as of meditation, had disappeared into the darkness of the trees. He was recalled from his irrelevance by the voice of Juliet Bray which rang out with an altogether new note of decision. If that is the difficulty, it had best be cleared up. I am engaged to Mr. Crane, and when we told my brother, he did not approve of it, that's all. Neither Brain nor Fisher exhibited any surprise, but the former added quietly, Except, I suppose, that he and your brother went off into the wood to discuss it, where Mr. Crane mislaid his sword, not to mention his companion. And, may I ask, inquired Crane, with a certain flicker of mockery, passing over his pallid features, what I am supposed to have done with either of them? Let us adopt the cheerful thesis that I am a murderer. It has yet to be shown that I am a magician. If I ran your unfortunate friend through the body, what did I do with the body? Did I have it carried away by seven flying dragons, or was it merely a trifling matter of turning it into a milk-white hind? It is no occasion for sneering, said the Anglo-Indian judge, with abrupt authority. It doesn't make it look better for you that you can joke about the loss. Fisher's dreamy and even dreary eye was still on the edge of the wood behind, and he became conscious of masses of dark red, like a stormy sunset cloud glowing through the dark grey network of the thin trees, and the prince in his cardinal's robes re-emerged onto the pathway. Brain had had half a notion that the prince might have gone to look for the lost rapier, but when he reappeared he was carrying in his hand not a sword, but an axe. The incongruity between the masquerade and the mystery had created a curious psychological atmosphere. At first they had all felt horribly ashamed at being caught in the foolish disguises of a festival, by an event that had only too much the character of a funeral. Many of them would have already gone back and dressed in clothes that were more funereal, or at least more formal. But somehow, at the moment, this seemed like a second masquerade, more artificial and frivolous than the first. And as they reconciled themselves to their ridiculous trappings, a curious sensation had come over some of them, notably over the more sensitive, like Crane and Fisher and Juliet, but in some degree over everybody except the practical Mr. Brain, It was almost as if they were the ghosts of their own ancestors haunting that dark wood and dismal lake, and playing some old part that they only half remembered. The movements of those coloured figures seemed to mean something that had been settled long before, like a silent heraldry. Acts, attitudes, external objects were accepted as an allegory, even without the key. And they knew when a crisis had come, when they did not know what it was and somehow they knew subconsciously that the whole tale had taken a new and terrible turn, when they saw the prince stand in the gap of the gaunt trees, in his robes of angry crimson, and with his lowering face of bronze, bearing in his hand a new shape of death. They could not have named a reason, but the two swords seemed indeed to have become toy-swords, and the whole tale of them broken and tossed away like a toy. looked like the old-world headsman, clad in terrible red, and carrying the axe for the execution of the criminal. And the criminal was not Crane. Mr. Brain of the Indian police was glaring at the new object. And it was a moment or two before he spoke, harshly and almost hoarsely. What are you doing with that? he asked. Seems to be a woodman's chopper. A natural association of ideas, observed Hornfisher. If you meet a cat in the wood you think it's a wild cat, though it may have just strolled from the drawing-room sofa. As a matter of fact, I happen to know that is not a woodman's chopper. It's the kitchen-chopper, or meat-axe, or something like that, that somebody has thrown away in the wood. I saw it in the kitchen myself when I was getting the potato-sacks with which I reconstructed a medieval hermit all the same it's not without interest remarked the prince holding out the instrument to fisher who took it and examined it carefully a butcher's cleaver that has done butcher's work it was certainly the instrument of the crime assented fisher in a low voice braine was staring at the dull blue gleam of the axe head with fierce and fascinated eyes i don't understand you he said there is no there are no marks on it It has shed no blood, answered Fisher, but for all that it has committed a crime. This is as near as the criminal came to the crime when he committed it. What do you mean? He was not there when he did it, explained Fisher. It's a poor sort of murderer who can't murder people when he isn't there. You seem to be talking merely for the sake of mystification, said Brain. If you have any practical advice to give, you might as well make it intelligible. The only practical advice I can suggest, said Fisher, thoughtfully, is a little research into local topography and nomenclature. They say there used to be a Mr. Pryor who had a farm in this neighbourhood. I think some details about the domestic life of the late Mr. Pryor would throw a light on this terrible business. And you have nothing more immediate than your topography to offer, said Brain, with a sneer, to help me avenge my friend. Well, said Fisher. I should find out the truth about the hole in the wall. That night, at the close of a stormy twilight, and under a strong west wind that followed the breaking of the frost, Leonard Crane was wending his way in a wild, rotary walk round and round the high, continuous wall that enclosed the little wood. He was driven by a desperate idea of solving for himself the riddle that had clouded his reputation, and already even threatened his liberty. The police authorities, now in charge of the inquiry, had not arrested him, but he knew well enough that if he tried to move far afield he would be instantly arrested. Hornfisher's fragmentary hints, though he had refused to expand them as yet, had stirred the artistic temperament of the architect to a sort of wild analysis, and he was resolved to read the hieroglyph upside down in every way until it made sense. If it was something connected with a hole in the wall, he would find the hole in the wall, but as a matter of fact he was unable to find the faintest crack in the wall. His professional knowledge told him that the masonry was all of one workmanship and one date, and, except for the regular entrance which threw no light on the mystery, he found nothing suggesting any sort of hiding-place or means of escape walking a narrow path between the winding wall and the wild eastward bend and sweep of the grey and feathery trees, seeing shifting gleams of a lost sunset, winking almost like lightning, as the clouds of tempests scudded across the sky, and mingling with the first faint blue light from a slowly strengthened moon behind him, he began to feel his head going round as his heels were going round and round the blind recurrent barrier. He had thoughts on the border of thought, fancies about a fourth dimension which was itself a hole to hide anything, of seeing everything from a new angle out of a new window in the senses, or of some mystical light and transparency, like the new rays of chemistry in which he could see Bulmer's body, horrible and glaring, floating in a lurid halo over the woods and the wall. He was haunted also with the hint, which somehow seemed to be equally horrifying, that it all had something to do with Mr. Pryor. There seemed even to be something creepy in the fact that he was always respectfully referred to as Mr. Pryor, and that it was in the domestic life of the dead farmer that he had been bidden to seek the seed of these dreadful things. As a matter of fact, he had found that no local inquiries had revealed anything at all about the Pryor family. The moonlight had broadened and brightened, the wind had driven off the clouds, and itself died fitfully away, when he came round again to the artificial lake in front of the house. For some reason it looked a very artificial lake. Indeed, the whole scene was like a classical landscape with a touch of Watto. The Palladian façade of the house pale in the moon, and the same silver touching the very pagan and naked marble nymph in the middle of the pond, Rather to his surprise, he found another figure there beside the statue, sitting almost equally motionless, and the same silver pencil traced the wrinkled brow and patient face of Horn Fisher, still dressed as a hermit and apparently practising something of the solitude of a hermit. Nevertheless, he looked up at Leonard Crane and smiled, almost as if he had expected him. Look here, said Crane, planting himself in front of him, can you tell me anything about this business? I shall soon have to tell everybody everything about it, replied Fisher, but I have no objection to telling you something first. But, to begin with, will you tell me something? What really happened when you met Bulmer this morning? You did throw away your sword, but you didn't kill him. I didn't kill him because I threw away my sword, said the other. I did it on purpose. Or I'm not sure what might have happened. After a pause he went on quietly. The late Lord Bulmer was a very breezy gentleman, extremely breezy. He was very genial with his inferiors, and would have his lawyer and his architect staying in his house for all sorts of holidays and amusements. But there was another side to him, which they found out when they tried to be his equals. When I told him that his sister and I were engaged, something happened which I simply can't and won't describe. It seemed to me like some monstrous upheaval of madness. But I suppose the truth is painfully simple. There is such a thing as the coarseness of a gentleman. And it is the most horrible thing in humanity." "'I know,' said Fisher. "'The Renaissance nobles of the Tudor time were like that.' "'It is odd that you should say that,' Crane went on. "'For while we were talking there came on me a curious feeling that we were repeating some scene of the past and that I was really some outlaw, found in the woods like Robin Hood, and that he had really stepped in all his plumes and purple out of the picture-frame of the ancestral portrait. Anyhow, he was the man in possession, and he neither feared God nor regarded man. I defied him, of course, and walked away. I might really have killed him if I had not walked away. Yes, said Fisher, nodding, his ancestor was in possession, and he was in possession. And this is the end of the story. It all fits in." "'Fits in with what?' cried his companion, with sudden impatience. "'I can't make head or tail of it. You tell me to look for the secret in the hole in the wall, but I can't find any hole in the wall.' "'There isn't any,' said Fisher. "'That's the secret.' After reflecting a moment, he added, "'Unless you call it a hole in the wall of the world—' "'Look, here. I'll tell you if you like, but I'm afraid it involves an introduction.' You've got to understand one of the tricks of the modern mind, a tendency that most people obey without noticing it. In the village or suburb outside there's an inn with the sign of St George and the Dragon. Now, suppose I went about telling everybody that this was only a corruption of King George and the Dragoon. Scores of people would believe it, without any inquiry from a vague feeling that it's probable because it's prosaic. It turns something romantic and legendary into something recent and ordinary and that somehow makes it sound rational, though it's unsupported by reason. Of course, some people would have the sense to remember having seen St George in old Italian pictures and French romances, but a good many wouldn't think about it at all. They would just swallow the scepticism because it was scepticism. Modern intelligence won't accept anything on authority, but it will accept anything without authority. That's exactly what has happened here. When some critic or other chose to say that Prior's Park was not a Priory, but was named after some quite modern man named Prior, nobody really tested the theory at all. It never occurred to anybody repeating the story to ask if there was any Mr. Prior, if anybody had ever seen him or heard of him. As a matter of fact, it was a Priory, and shared the fate of most Priories. That is, the Tudor gentleman with the plume simply stole it by brute force and turned it into his own private house he did worse things as usual here but the point here is that this is how the trick works and the trick works in the same way in the other parts of the tale the name of this district is printed holinwall in all the best maps produced by the scholars and they allude lightly not without a smile to the fact that it was pronounced hollywell by the most ignorant and old-fashioned of the poor but it is spelled wrong and pronounced right.' "'Do you mean to say,' asked Crane quickly, "'that there really was a well?' "'There is a well,' said Fisher, "'and the truth lies at the bottom of it.' As he spoke he stretched out his hand and pointed toward the sheet of water in front of him. "'The well is under the water somewhere,' he said, "'and this is not the first tragedy connected with it. The founder of this house did something which his fellow ruffians very seldom did something that had to be hushed up even in the anarchy of the pillage of the monasteries. The well was connected with the miracles of some saint, and the last prior that guarded it was something like a saint himself. Certainly he was something very like a martyr. He defied the new owner and dared him to pollute the place, till the noble, in a fury, stabbed him and flung his body into the well, whither, after four hundred years, it has been followed by an heir of the usurper clad in the same purple, and walking the world with the same pride. But how did it happen, demanded Crane, that for the first time Bulmer fell in at that particular spot? Because the ice was only loosened at that particular spot by the only man who knew it, answered Hornfisher. It was cracked deliberately with the kitchen chopper at that special place, and I myself heard the hammering and did not understand it. The place had been covered with an artificial lake, if only because the whole truth had to be covered with an artificial legend. But don't you see that it is exactly what those pagan nobles would have done, to desecrate it with a sort of heathen goddess, as the Roman Emperor built a temple to Venus on the Holy Sepulchre? But the truth could still be traced out by any scholarly man determined to trace it. And this man was determined to trace it. What man? asked the other, with a shadow of the answer in his mind. The only man who has an alibi, replied Fisher. James Haddo, the antiquarian lawyer. Left the night before the fatality, but he left that black star of death on the ice. He left abruptly, having previously proposed to stay, probably, I think, after an ugly scene with Bulmer at their legal interview. As you know yourself, Bulmer could make a man feel pretty murderous and i rather fancy the lawyer had himself irregularities to confess and was in danger of exposure by his client but it's my reading of human nature that a man will cheat in his trade but not in his hobby haddo may have been a dishonest lawyer but he couldn't help being an honest antiquary when he got on the track of the truth about the holy well he had to follow it up he was not to be bamboozled with newspaper anecdotes about mr pryor and a hole in the wall He found out everything, even to the exact location of the well. And he was rewarded. If being a successful assassin can be regarded as a reward. And how did you get on the track of all this hidden history? asked the young architect. A cloud came across the brow of Horn Fisher. I knew only too much about it already, he said. And after all, it's shameful for me to be speaking lightly of Paul Bulmer who has paid his penalty. But the rest of us haven't. I dare say every cigar I smoke and every liqueur I drink comes directly or indirectly from the harrying of the holy places and the persecution of the poor. After all, it needs very little poking about in the past to find that hole in the wall, that great breach in the defences of English history. It lies just under the surface of a thin sheet of sham information and instruction just as the black and blood-stained well lies just under the floor of shallow water and flat weeds. Oh, the ice is thin, but it bears, it is strong enough to support us when we dress up as monks and dance on it, in mockery of the dear, quaint old Middle Ages. They told me I must put on fancy dress, so I did put on fancy dress, according to my own taste and fancy. I put on the only costume I think fit for a man who has inherited the position of a gentleman and yet has not entirely lost the feelings of one. In answer to a look of inquiry, he rose with a sweeping and downward gesture. Sackcloth, he said, and I would wear the ashes as well, if they would stay on my bald head. End of chapter Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Crispy Sandwich.